I want to share a message from Luke chapter 15. This is one of the great chapters in the Bible. Um, I will say I'm excited to be back from a week's vacation, and I got to spend some time with my son-in-law who flew from Colorado to Atlanta. I picked him up, and I had him all to myself for a few days, stuck in the middle of nowhere with hardly any phone service. So he and I got some quality time together. I don't like to miss Sundays, though. I like to get back for Sunday because I, I uh, love being around my TFA family, and I also kind of like preaching. Um, there, will, there will be times that I'll miss Sunday, but it's usually to be maybe in service with one of our two children because I do like to check out where they're going to church. And I, I promise you I'm not there to evaluate the pastor. Um, I just want to see the setting they're in, and I'm encouraging. This is one of the things I told Sean on the way back, I said, the people that you met, there was a number of them there. I haven't been around some of them for 25 years. 25 years. Richard Myers, um, he was there, and I hadn't, hadn't been around Richard for 25 years. But he was our children's pastor at one time, very active in our church. Lifelong friends, he and Tammy. Um, I guess I have a tendency to hire uh, staff whose wife is Tammy. But um, I said, here's, Sean, if Jesus tears for another 25 years, I hope you and Kelly are in a church where you're having fellowship with, us, with those people that you met 25 years ago. Because that means, that tells me that you have not just attended a, a setting called a church, but that you got involved. And I pressed, I pressed him about a number of things. He was probably glad to get on that plane and head back to Colorado. Um, but this is a very familiar passage of Scripture. This is like Matthew 16 where Peter gives this great confession of Jesus, one of the great chapters in the Gospels. Luke 15, if you, if you know much about that, you know there's three parables in this chapter. And they all have a common theme. Uh, it's the lost sheep, lost coin, and lost son. And if you're in the NIV, it, got, it has these titled out, added by the translators to tell you that this is a story about uh, a man who lost one of 100 sheep and a lady who lost one silver coin, coin out of 10 and a man who had a son that, that got wayward in his life. And... Uh, you know, and they titled them the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. If you have like a New American standard, it does not call that parable the lost son. But what do we know the parable as? The prodigal son. Prodigal is not mentioned in the story. It's just taken on this title of the prodigal son. We're going to get to that in just a moment. But whatever you read from verses 3 on... It's all related back to the first two verses, and that's where we're going to start. Because when you think about these stories, you're not thinking about probably the connection at the start of this chapter division. Uh, look at verse 1 and 2 with me. Now, the tax collectors, also known as publicans, um, the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him, meaning Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man, this is not a compliment, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. This man has 
despicable people not only around him, but he goes home to eat with them. And, and Jesus overhears them say that. And the very next word says, Then Jesus told them this parable. Who do you think them are? The Pharisees. These stories are directed to them, not to the publicans, the tax collectors, and sinners, but to this uh, undercurrent, you know, it, this guy's hanging out with the wrong kind of people. And so that first story is about a man who has 100 sheep. If you keep this in mind, it's almost like I'm thinking in my mind, I'm looking, and Jesus is looking at them as he's telling them this story. A man had 100 sheep. One of them gets lost. He leaves the 99, and he goes and searches for that one lost sheep. But when he finds it, he picks it up, he brings it home, and he celebrates finding that one lost sheep. In verse 7, here is the point that Jesus is making with this particular parable. He said, I'll tell you that in that same way, he's drawing a comparison to the story and to what God is going to have happening here about this one sheep that is found. I'll tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner. And it's almost like he looks at them, the sinners, while he's looking at them, over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. He said, if just one of them, it's like that man finding that one lost sheep. And he goes on to the next story right after that, which is a woman who has 10 silver coins. She loses one. And I'm not going to read it, but it's right there for you. She combs the house for this one lost coin. She lights a candle. She's lifting things. She's moving things. Imagine how you've seen people who lose their cell phone. They're digging down in the seat. They're lifting the sofa. They're, they're going out in the car. They even travel alongside the road thinking, maybe I dropped it off my car. I've known people to go back and actually find a cell phone on the highway because they stopped to do something, and they said, well, maybe it fell out. And they found their phone. It's like you've got to find the phone, right? This woman, this 10 silver coins in her era, and these people understood the story. It was not just, well, so what? I got nine left. That's, that's not how she approached it. She went frantically through her house, sweeping, looking at everything. And when she finds that one lost coin, she wants to celebrate it, and she wants to celebrate it with her friends. And this is the closing words to that story in verse 10. Jesus said in the same way, looking at the Pharisees in the same way, I tell you there is rejoicing in the presence of angels of God over one sinner who repents. There is excitement in heaven because God is the one. In that story, the woman depicts God, right? That God pursues, he searches, he works, he, he reveals himself. He's, he's moving things around in people's lives. He's trying to open their eyes. He wants them to see their, that their only hope is in him. And when they turn and they repent, and accept him, there's great rejoicing in heaven. There's similar rejoicing in heaven, just like these people in the story. But look at the third parable. The prodigal son. 
Does anyone here know what prodigal means? Does it mean lost? Anybody want to take a stab at Somebody's looking on their phone right now. They're Googling prodigal right there. You'll be surprised when you find the meaning. Anyone know the meaning? Someone right here knows the meaning. Let me just give it to you. Spending money or resources freely and recklessly, wastefully extravagant, having or giving something on a lavish scale. So the story takes on the, the temperament of this son who goes crazy with his resources. And that is the prodigal son. We almost take prodigal as maybe a wayward son, right? One who's gotten off the path, but it had more to do with how this man's lifestyle and Jesus is so specific in this parable there's no doubt that they were understanding, the Pharisees were understanding every nuance of that story. When he was telling them about all, all this that happened, I want you to look at the sun for a little bit. The first defi- there's a second definition of parable that I'm going to give you in a moment. But the first definition applies to this man. He's reckless with his life, reckless with his money, reckless with his resources, goes absolutely crazy, he gets his inheritance from his father. He goes out, he goes into a far country. He spends everything that he has, everything. He wasted on harlots, every kind of party, every friend that he could find. The story goes on to say this guy went absolutely off the reservation with his spending. And he ends up hiring himself out to a hog farm. Now think about it. When Jesus is telling this story, And these guys are getting the gist of what these stories apply to. They know that the sheep and the coin are those guys. (laughs) That Jesus said, these are sinners. Yes, they're lost. And heaven rejoices over every one of them that comes to the truth. But then he gets to this story, and these guys know what's coming. They can feel it. And I just see their faces become flushed with anger as Jesus tells this story. On and on. This guy gets his inheritance, goes into a far country, hangs out with Gentiles, gets hired onto a hog farm, and there he's attending the nastiest animals, that unclean animals. They're not even supposed to be around pigs. And there he is feeding these hogs. And he longs to eat what they're eating. I don't know if any of you have been around hogs. We raise hogs. We are... My dad tried his hand in everything. Cows, hogs, chickens, boysenberry. Mama put her foot down when he wanted to do a turkey farm. She says, no, we've already went through all the other farms. We can't do turkeys. But hogs, we raise hogs. If you ever watch hogs eat, you just don't really, it doesn't stir up an appetite. And it's pods. I don't know what pods are, but I can tell you this, hogs eat anything. You know, Bean holes, no matter what you throw out there, they like it. And whatever they were feeding the hogs was the waste of a famine. You think about people just weren't throwing away good food and giving it to the hogs. This was a famine. He was barely, and he looks at what they're eating, and he wants to, he's so hungry, he wants to eat what they're eating. And the very next thing, he comes to his senses. 
In verse 13, I want you to read these words. He goes through all of that, fills his, wants to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. He doesn't even have anybody that cares one thing about him. As bad a shape as he in, my, how the wealthy little child, the little son, has fallen, right? He had a lot of money at one time. Now he's on skid row. He's in a far country with Gentiles. There's no pretense. There's no demands. He comes to his senses. And what does he say to himself? What am I doing here? My father's hired servants are doing better than this. I'll go home and ask him if I could just be one of the hired hands on his farm. Because the hired hands get better treatment than what I'm getting. So he doesn't think maybe my father will still let me back having some kind of resource. He just says, I'm just going to go home and see what happens. And when you look at the father and you see now, now, I don't know about you, but I did not like English literature. Give me a math problem, geometry problem, something that I could just figure out. I remember the glass menagerie. I don't know why I remember that. Maybe it's because I still have nightmares over my English lit teacher saying, what does this story mean? And I'm like, yeah, I don't, I don't know. It's a story. No, the author meant this represents this. I said, why didn't he just say that? Why do I have to try to figure this out? They all come through. And I said, I'm in trouble. I do not know how to figure these things out. This was not a difficult story for these people to figure out. Who represented the father in this story? Who does the father represent, brother? Represents God. The son. The son that spends everything that he has. Who does that represent in the setting that they're in? The sinners. Who does the other son represent? This group. <laughs> and I want you to see, I'm not going to talk much about that group because I don't think the story really centers on him. And we can analyze him all we want to. We can analyze the younger son all we want to. But this story is not about either one of those sons. It's about the father. This zeroes in... On the father. And when he heads home, he has nothing. And Jesus says that when the father sees him afar, he runs to him. He doesn't wait for him to get there. He goes and meets him. And the first thing he does is what? If you're in the story. What is the first thing he does? No, that's the second thing. He puts his arms around a pig farmer. Dirty, broken, smelly. And the kiss is really more significant because that's even more personal. The father embraces him. Listen, there's some, there's some principles here I want you to get because some of these apply to us. He embraces him and kisses him on the neck as a son. Before the son has to say anything. Before the son says, 
what's on his mind, why he's come back. Before he can tell the father anything, the father runs and meets him, embraces him, and kisses him. And then the son says, I'm not worthy to even be your son anymore. Just let me be one of the servants on the farm. Listen, there's a lot of people waiting for someone to come and apologize to them before they exercise forgiveness. God is not like that. Squire Parsons, one of the great voices in gospel music, did a song that it's hard for me to get through that song. But it simply says, he came to me. When I could not come to where he was, he came to me. And that picture there is that maybe that son did not have enough energy to get home. Maybe he was wearing down and the father sees him from afar, runs to him, embraces him and kisses him as to say, it's going to be all right. As soon as the son says what he says, the father is like he ignores it. <laughs> Look at verse 22. The father turns to the servants that have, have went with him, and he says these words, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a finger, a ringer, a ringer on his finger. <laughs> put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And so they began to celebrate. And the rest of the story is about the, the other son that takes exception to all of this. But let's just zero on these things that the father says. Quick, bring the best robe. And there's a double emphasis here because there's a word here that it's hard to translate. Best is, is really an awkward translation. It's protos. He's almost saying, bring the robe. This is how it's kind of translated awkwardly. Bring the robe, the first one. Protos. It's not like it means best. Bring the robe, and it's like he's telling the servants, bring the robe, the prior robe that he used to wear when he was in the family. Bring that robe, and this robe is called a, a stole. It's stole in, in the original language. We get the word stole from something that you wrap over your shoulders. But it was a long outward garment that kings and princes would wear as a formal way of showing their royalty. This was something that the, this was the best dress that the family would wear at special occasions. This was not just any garment in the closet at home. He says, you go back and get the best thing we have. And you put it on him. You think about this. This is the same word in Revelation time and time again when it talks about the saints of God are dressed in white stoles. They're dressed in white robes of royalty. Why? Because the, the precious blood of Jesus has cleansed them of all their sins and they stand before God clean and white, not in their righteousness, but in his forgiveness. And this picture is this father saying to this son, we're redeeming him. We're welcoming back him. We're restoring him. And then he says, go get the ring. What was the significance of a ring? 
Well, the family usually had their own family rings, their signet rings. That was kind of like the arms of the family. It was their, it had the design of their family. And it was like he was saying to him, yes, you spent your inheritance, but I'm about to give you another inheritance. I'm not just going to let you live with us. You're going to be on equal plane with us. As though what has happened really didn't happen. We, we don't forgive that easy, do we? We want to give people like a, a time frame. Okay, we'll trust you, but you have to prove yourself. There was none of that conditional stuff here. This was all unconditional. Put the ring on his finger and go get sandals. Go get shoes, because he was probably barefooted. Broke, had nothing. And he says, you're dressed in this fancy robe. You got a ring, and you can't go to the party barefooted. So these shoes, I believe, in the story have been preserved waiting for him to get home. So they put the shoes on, and now he says, now let's bring the fatted calf. Here's what I want you to pay attention this morning, is that this father represents God running to us in our dirtiness, in our shame, in our sin, in our smelliness, embracing us, kissing us, and telling us it's going to be all right. And we, we really think that maybe grace sometimes is almost partially earned. That we got to prove ourselves before God does that for us. Let me remind you again that he's speaking to Pharisees about how God treats sinners who repent. And so they begin to celebrate. The other son represents these Pharisees who didn't see it that way. They didn't know that they were smelly and dirty and broken as well. They didn't know that they needed God the Father to run to them and embrace them. In our ushers meeting in the kitchen before Sunday school, I thought Rhonda, Rhonda's going to get into my sermon here. Talking about Erwin McManus, about we, we pursue God, right? Any God chasers here the great book I will tell you this I'll have to give credit to Tim Keller who um, wrote some great books the reason for God I was sitting in in Barnes and Noble uh, waiting to meet Kelly uh, a few years ago for coffee and I just went by and picked up a book that had the reason for God I didn't even look at the author I picked it up and I was just going to read it a little bit you know you can do that in a bookstore you can just read a little bit and go back and put it back and uh, I was reading it, waiting on her, and, and the man who used to own uh, what is Lifeway Gospel books now walked up to me, and he spoke to me, and he said, uh, let me introduce you to a new author that's written some really good books. His name is Timothy Keller. And I said, hmm, now, that seems familiar. And he's, tell, he's telling me about these books, The Prodigal God. And, and I looked down, and I said, wait a minute, he wrote this book, The Reason for God. And he says, yes, that's one of his books. So I went and bought it. And then I bought The Prodigal God. And I have to give him credit for enlightening me on what the word prodigal means. Because the whole book is about God's pursuit of us. How God runs after us. Longs for us. You think about the father in this story will look out 
the window and, and it was like he was waiting, just waiting, longing, wondering, when is he coming home? When is he coming home? And as soon as he sees him, he doesn't have a lecture prepared for him. That's, we do that, right? We have a lecture prepared. We're going we're gonna, to, you know, rethink everything that, you know, why would you do that? Why would you take your inheritance? Why would you blow it? All that hard work that the family did. You, you wasted all of our money on something else. You wasted your portion. You're not going to get anything in the wheel now. I'm striking you out of the wheel. That's what we would do. And God is just the opposite. He goes to him, he forgives him without him even asking. He pursues him. And this is the picture of God pursuing us, running after us. I don't think in our wildest imagination we have any idea how much God loves us. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still rebels, and if we're not careful, we're going to take on a little bit of a Pharisee spirit. And that since we are saved and we're on our way to heaven, we've got to be careful that we don't become one of them and look at them thinking, my, they're really in bad shape. And forget how bad a shape we were in. And that without the mercy of God, without the forgiveness of God, we would still be over on this side. And that we, this is the interesting thing. Not only did he bring sandals for him to get to the party, but it was like, uh, by the way, you're not home to sit on the sofa. You're home to participate. Your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel. It says, you're going to be part of my plan again. We're not just going to say, wow, what a great trophy we have here. You're back in the service of the family. You're back in the business with us. And that business is the kingdom of God. That's the whole point of the story. It's interesting that at the end of this story, Jesus does not add that little statement he did after the sheep and coin and saying, and there is likewise in the same manner such rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And I believe the reason why Jesus did not add that is that the story told that. The fattened calf. Meaning this, and I can refer to the older son a little bit. Brandon, if you can come to the instrument. The older son was taken exception because the fattened calf was reserved. And it's come almost like, what, what's going on? He says, and watch, watch this story. This is such a great story. If you haven't went through it, just take your time and get through it because the, the nuances of it is really interesting. He said, what's the excitement about it? He says, your father, your, son, your brother's come back and your father has killed the fattened calf and they're celebrating. It's kind of like, he's saying, the calf? You mean the one in the stall? The one that was going to be my special occasion? He's killed that one? The one we've been feeding? And then he refers to not his brother. He refers to his, when he's talking to his father, he says, your son. He never said my brother. Your son has squandered our resources with harlots and with 
a life of sin, and you're doing this for your son. Why didn't you ever do that for me? And if you want to know the, dis the disposition that is the most dangerous for us to start down that road is being stingy with the grace of God. A little bit self-centered, but a little bit saying, well, why hasn't you know, that happened for me? Why hasn't God done that for me? And we start kind of comparing God's grace upon someone else's life with maybe his lack of grace on our life. And before you know it, we're a bitter person arguing with God just like that older son was arguing with his father. And his father says, Son, you're, you're already in the family. He wanted to have a celebration. All you had to do is say so. You had all the privileges of family. But he didn't want the privileges of family. He wanted the, his privileges and the privileges that belonged to his brother. And he never referred to that man as my brother. He only said impersonally, your son. If there's ever a thing we need to be aware of is getting a little bit of root of bitterness in us that I'm not getting the benefits that I need that I should get when someone else is getting them. Would you stand with me, please?